0: We are going to be back in Acts, so go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8, and we will get our our study on. So, so far in Acts, I mean, really up to this very moment, uh, we've been looking at the early church. That's what Acts is about. It's a story of the narrative of of how the apostles, the followers of Jesus Christ, uh, spread the news of the gospel. Uh, spread the message of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and how they really delivered the gospel uh, to to the known world. And so, uh, so far what we've seen is that message just beginning uh, to to, um, take root in Jerusalem. We're seeing thousands of people, uh, Jewish Believers uh, converting to Christianity, recognizing for the very first time that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come. And so we've seen uh, this this crazy and awesome thing taking place in Jerusalem in our story so far. Now, there's been along the way quite a bit of kickback from the religious leaders, right, in our our story. And we've seen uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the temple... Uh, fighting back against the apostles. And, and up to a certain point, that just looked like ridicule, maybe a little jail time, a couple of beatings here and there. Uh, but really, the, ch- the church was coming away fairly unscathed, and they were thriving. And then we looked at uh, the story of Stephen, right? Uh, Deacon Stephen in, in chapter 7. And he confronts the Sanhedrin. And he preaches a gospel message that they do not receive. And at the end of chapter 7, we see that he's stoned to death. And really, this is the game changer in our, in our story. This is where things really begin to change. With the rejection of Stephen, uh, we see the oppression of the church begin to alter a little bit. Okay? And here we are in, in Acts chapter 8. Last time we were together, uh, which I believe was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, we saw um, the oppressor, Saul. Um, come, into, uh, come into our story, and he's going to ma- play a major part of Acts moving forward. But I want to give you a little bit of an outline, okay, for those of you who are really studying. I know a lot of you guys are in Acts in, in LFBI, and you're studying Acts, and, and you're going to go real deep, but this is a, this is a general outline for Acts, uh, what we've seen so far and what we will see. So the first seven chapters that we've covered is about how the church started, again, the oppression and the persecution was was mainly um, relegated to leadership. Uh, uh, there was maybe some jail time, but no, nothing really very serious. Until we see Stephen stoned, and then things begin to change. And this is what we're looking at now, how the church scattered. And we're going to spend the next five chapters, basically, uh, seeing how the church began to spread. And the news of the gospel spread with him. And then when we get to Acts chapter 13 through 28... We're going to see uh, really how the church begins begins to take form and a missions model starts. And it's a missions model that we use even today. We look to that testimony as a way of better understanding how we are to send as the local church, send missionaries out into the known world. And so this is a, a, a general and helpful outline. Um, let's pray and then we'll get back to our story. I know. We've, uh, w- when you have a lot of visitors, it's tough because I want to spend some time reviewing. I don't want you to be left in the dark in terms of what we've been talking about. But you'll catch on, right? You'll catch on. You'll figure it out. Nudge someone next to you if you've got questions uh, about, about where we're at in the story. But really what I, I, I'm praying for this morning is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, would be on you. And that what you'd recognize is that, that you play a part in this story. You know, stories like uh, we read in the Bible. A lot of times, they seem very distant. They seem very far away. Uh, they seem very abstract, and they don't necessarily seem to have relevance. When we picture these people, we picture them wearing clothes that are much different than ours, um, living lives that are much different than ours, having experiences that are much different than ours. But, but the truth is, for the church, when we read Acts, it should be pressing. It should feel, if we're living Christ the way that we should, if we're being the church the way that we should, this story shouldn't feel distant. It should feel pressing. It should feel powerful in our lives. And that's what I'm asking for uh, for today, that the, that the Lord would show you the relevance of His Word in your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I need You. Um, we're kind of picking up halfway through a story, and, and so, God, I, I just pray that You would... Give clarity um, where I lack, and uh, there will be moments uh, today where where I'm sharing something, and and um, it may not communicate clearly. And and Lord, I pray in those moments that you would intervene, and and that there would be clarity in the minds and in the hearts of your people today. Well, we we desire and we need to follow you, and um, and Lord, uh, we need truth in our lives. There's there's certainly people here today who. This last week have struggled with anxiety and uh, and depression and frustration, um, confusion even. And so, Lord, I pray that 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 you would have answers for them, and that, Lord, your word would um, bring rest and peace to their hearts, where they where they've maybe been dismayed or um, just Lord, where there's hopelessness. It seems, God, I pray that you would meet them there. And that you would help us, and help us to lay hold on who you are, and the truths of your gospel, that we might uh, conform to your image, the the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and and be like him in every way, in our thoughts, our mind, and um, in our actions. And we ask for your help, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Okay, anybody else feel a little foggy just from the time change? I mean, it just seems like there's a bit of a fog... And some of y'all were dancing late last night at the uh, the side bottom wedding. Now, for for those of you who don't know who the side bottoms are, the side bottom wedding sounds really humorous. These these people have the name side bottom. It's a it's like a name. It's such a strange name. I know that Brooke's here. There's a side bottom right there. Is it, have you ever met another side bottom that is not your family? You have? Amazing. An exceptional name. You know, Blake and Julie um, got married last night, and a lot of you guys were, were dancing and acting crazy, and, and that, plus the time change. It's hard to to focus, but let's do our best, okay? Let's start by looking at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and remind ourselves of where we've been a little bit. This is right after the death of Stephen, okay? Stephen was just stoned, and things uh, the heat is turned up on the early church, and it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. Now, So we're introduced to a man named Saul here. Now Saul was a religious leader... Uh, among the Sanhedrin, an up-and-coming religious leader, if you will, well-trained, well-educated, a man full of zeal and passion uh, to serve the Hebrew God. And he knew the law well. And Jesus, the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus, was a direct attack on what he believed. And so he took that matter very seriously And he took charge to the persecution of the church. And Saul was there and present at the death of Stephen. In fact, he was the man holding everyone's coats while the other uh, Jewish zealots took stones and stoned him to death. It says that Saul was consenting unto his death. And at at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad and throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, burial and made great lamentation over him. And for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Now, I'm not going to go back and preach the message that I preached last time. You can go back and, and listen to that if you like. It's, but we're going to look here at Saul for a moment. Stephen was just the beginning of the persecution. It's was just the beginning. Um, Saul... Who, who led this charge was given um, warrants for people's arrest. And we see that in um, Acts chapter 9. We see that, they, that he was given warrants for, for the arrest of any Christian, anyone claiming to be a Christ follower. And so the persecution that was basically just reserved for the apostles was beginning to trickle down to anybody who was a part of the temple previously, anyone who was coming out of a Jewish background, you know, some some people say, some theologians say that maybe even a lot of the persecution before was focused just on the Hellenistic uh, uh, Jews who had become Christians. Like Stephen. Stephen was a Greek who had become a Jewish follower who had then converted to Christianity. And, they, and a lot of people say maybe a lot of that persecution was devoted to just those types of Christians. But now what we're beginning to see is we're beginning to see that trickle down into the lives of those who had once been a part of Jewish Worship who had been a part of the temple. And now they're beginning to see some of that. And, and, and so what we see is that um, people are, are afraid. And uh, Paul is not messing around. And he's young and he's full of energy. And he's putting it to work. And he's, it says here that he's wreaking havoc on the church. This word havoc uh, is, a, is a similar word to rent or tear or divide. And so what he was seeking to do was to divide the people. Okay, to tear them down. And and havoc is a perfect word for that. He he wrought havoc on the church. So continue on in verse three. As as for Saul, he he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So he was going into people's homes, he was invading their privacy. He was laying hold on them. This word hail means to, to lay hold on and to take people away. He was laying hold on people, and he was taking them before the religious magistrate to stand trial and be put in prison. Now, we don't know the names of any of these people. It doesn't give us a list of names here. We don't know what they endured. We don't know the details. We don't know what they said or did that caused them to be targeted, but what we do know is that these people will receive a crown for the persecution that they endured. We do know that. You know, we don't have to know their names. Christ does. Christ saw everything that these people went through. He watched, He knew, and He was with them. And He endured it with them. And He suffered along their side. And these people, according to James chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. These people will receive a crown of life for the trials and the temptations that they endured. And this is true for for every believer, not just martyrs alone, but those who endure affliction under the hand of an oppressor. These people will receive a crown of life. We know that for a fact. And so here's my first key point. Trial and temptation are reasonable marks of faithfulness on earth. And they're worth, worthy of reward in heaven. Now, now, what I want to point out to you, and I think this is super important, is that, is that I think it's really common for all of us who are believers who profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and desire, desire to share the gospel with people. It's common for us all to face a little bit of persecution, right? I, uh, I had a conversation with a couple of Christian kids at the high school that I teach at this last week, and they talked about how a lot of times when they bring up the gospel, or they mention that they're a believer, um, they they've were telling me about there's times in which they've been ridiculed for what they believe, among teachers, among other students, among peers. And I think that's fairly common, right? You're in a science class, right? Uh, They're talking about whatever, you know, they're talking, they tend to de-emphasize the Big Bang, by the way, uh, anymore. They they don't like to talk about that because they know there's holes all over that. But they do like to talk about evolution. And uh, if they're they're talking about evolution, and you're talking about a biblical perspective, and you're talking about adaptation, and 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 you have a perspective, a biblical perspective, that tends to get ridiculed, you know? You're going to have people in your class that that, that, that might, uh, you know, look at you as lesser than. Um, in the high school today, and, and I'm probably I'm sure this is very very true on college campuses. Conversations about gender tend to be um, a big deal. People lose their minds about that. And if you take a biblical stance on, on gender and sex, um, you are you're you know you're anathema. Right, uh, And you will, you will face some level of persecution. People will um, s- say that because you take a, 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 a traditional perspective, uh, it doesn't look like theirs, um, that you are somehow lesser than, that you are not an intellectual, that you are intolerant, that you are a bigot, and you're going to receive some level of persecution. But I think in many regards that's very easy to deal with. I mean, if, if you know that Jesus Christ loved you and He died for you, I think it's pretty easy to lay hold on Scripture and trust in it and endure it. But I want you to, I want you to, to know, first of all, first and foremost, that, that, that cultural battles don't belong to us. Okay, This is very, very important for us to know. Cultural battles, they don't belong to us. Political battles, they aren't ours. I mean, I know that it looks like in Christianity today, that if you're a Christian, that you have to be, have some sort of political affiliation but I want to denounce that right now. Uh, that is not what we are living for. And we are not going to fix things by affiliating ourselves with a political party or taking a cultural stance. We are going to have impact in this world by preaching the gospel. <laughs> and I want you to anticipate as time passes, I know that right now that it just looks like a, a political or a cultural debate. But when you take a, a Christian stance, when you take a biblical stance, then I want you to know that there's a good chance that in your lifetime, that the persecution might change and the heat might be turned up. I want you to be aware of that fact. I want you to be prepared for that fact. In your lifetime, you might see the persecution go from just a bit of a, you know, a, a philosophical, biblical, cultural debate in your classroom to being true and authentic persecution, the type of which we see right here. You might see that. And certainly there are people in this world, people in other parts of this world, who are facing physical persecution, who are being put on trial for what they believe. And I think it's very, very important today that we understand what that response should look like. What does it look like when we're under trial for our faith? When we speak Christ and we're attacked, what what should that prompt us to do? Look at verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So these people were facing persecution. They were facing persecution. Their friends were being put in prison. Their friends were suffering at the hand of Saul. Saul. And so as they begin to move and take habitation in other uh, surrounding regions, which we'll talk about more in a second, what is it that they're doing? What is it that they're doing? They're taking the gospel with them. And, And this is what I want to say for believers who truly believe in the gospel. No matter what you face, no matter what difficulty, no matter what persecution, the gospel should be on your lips. It provoked them to greater preaching. It, gr- it provoked them to greater fervency in the message. It didn't silence them the way Saul would, uh, would have hoped it would have. It made them speak more clearly. They preached. It drew them deeper into the Great Commission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. So when the people scatter, they scatter with the gospel. Now listen, no matter the motivation to go, okay, this is, this is, this is really important to hear, okay, so pay attention to this. No matter the motivation to go, see, wh- whether you're compelled by God, the way Mike Reno is compelled by God to go to Boston and plant a church, right? The Lord is convicting him. And he believes that he is supposed to go and plant a church in Boston. There will be a lot of people here that want to go with him and be a part of that work so that you might go and preach the gospel of your own volition, of God's own compelling conviction in your heart and in your life. I feel the desire I ought to go. And you go with him and you do that work. So whether it's like that, or maybe, maybe it's a matter of circumstance. Right? Maybe you have to, you, you go and you live the Great Commission as a matter of circumstance. You know, Jeanette Bishage didn't desire to go back home. You understand? She desired to stay here with us. That's what she desired. But she was, based on her circumstances, God literally moved her and took her away from us and put her exactly where he wanted her to be. And these Christians are being... because of circumstance, are being moved. You know, Miyoko didn't want to go back to Japan, but her circumstances compelled her to go back to Japan, and she was moved, right? She was moved by the determined hand of God. So whether you desire it, or whether you're forced, whether it's by choice or by force, listen to me, you go to preach the gospel. That's what you go to do. That's your part in this whole thing. It is your life's purpose is to preach the gospel. And so whether you move because you choose to do so or you move because you're forced to do so, you should go preaching God's word. And this is is very important perspective for us because a lot of times our circumstances aren't our own. There'll be times in your life where you have to, to do things that you don't want to do. There'll be times in which Your desires are not the ones you're living in. And when that's the case, when that's the case, that should not silence you. It should not discourage you. It should not frustrate you. It should not depress you. It should not make you sad. Your job is to preach the gospel. And you should do that. And this might require a serious perspective change on your part. You know, many of us get so hung up on our circumstances in life that we lose sight of the opportunities that God is giving to, uh, to us to serve and to preach every single day, because we're so hung up on our circumstances. So here's key point number two. Eyes on circumstances, whether that's persecution or displacement of some sort, that's what we're seeing here in Acts, is that they're facing persecution and they're being displaced from their homes. Eyes on our circumstances will paralyze our faith. Now, I, th- I think, I think, Eric, you got the crazy look on your face. What's going on? Oh. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's good too. You got to jot that down. Give, guys, give Nick a break, man. This is still new to him, right? Yeah. It's new. By the way, Nick, uh, Nick did new members this week, and him and Sam Miles taught the new members class. Proud, I'm proud of my disciple. He's a man. Was it a good time? Yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lead in worship. That is not going to happen anymore. Okay, now, so just listen to me. Just listen to me. If your eyes are on your circumstances, it can paralyze you. It can distract you. It can pull you away. And you know right now, look at, look at your heart. What are the circumstances? What are the things in your life that you're saying to yourself, I wish things were not this way. I wish this was not the circumstance of my life right now. I wish I wasn't stuck in this thing. And I want you to consider for a moment That the things that you can't control are actually good things. That God is looking out for you, that He knows where you're at. He knows your life. He's overseeing you just the way He did these believers in Acts. He sees your circumstances and He's with you. And you know what? He's working. And what He desires is that your eyes would be on the opportunity. And when your eyes are on the opportunity, it empowers faith. If you can take your eyes off your circumstances and put them on the opportunity that stands before you, it should empower faith in your life. You know, one of my most favorite studies of all time is when I was studying Judges and I was looking at Gideon, and I saw that, that, that the soldiers that were fit for battle were the ones who had the eyes on the battlefield, you know? I love that Jesus says that our eyes ought, he says, look, look upon the harvest. Look on the harvest. See, the, the thing is, we don't recognize that God has given us a great and awesome opportunity in this world. And that the purpose of our life sits before us, it stands before us. And we actually have the ability to live in that, no matter what our circumstances are no matter what transition we're facing in life, no matter what difficulties arise, no matter how much our plans get altered, we have the ability to live and fulfill the Great Commission. And that is the greatest opportunity that any human being can experience. And we, we ought to set our eyes on opportunity. Because when you do that, then you start living real crazy. Seriously. Seriously. If you believe, if you believe that the field is white under harvest, you really believe that, and that you carry a message that sets people free, there's a good chance that you'll do just about anything. Nothing is impossible to you. And no circumstance is going to alter that perspective. But some of us, some of us in this room right now have circumstances, difficulties, schedule issues, to impede our eyes on the harvest. See, God isn't concerned about how, how th- those early Christians got to Samaria. He's not concerned about that. He's not concerned about how they got to Judea. If persecution is the card that Satan wanted to play, then God will use it to his own glory. Either way, either way, it's our responsibility to be motivated by the preaching of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 15 says, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. God's not concerned about how you get there, just that you do. Who are you going to? Who are you going to? How you get there doesn't matter. We ought to be preaching the gospel to every man and every creature. That's what we ought to be doing. And if you start there, circumstances will never be a problem for you. They will never be a problem for you. Now let's look, let's look at the first mission trip. Anybody going on a missions trip this year? You've already signed up. Okay, okay, that's not as many as I thought. Hmm, maybe after I preach this. There'll be more people signed up. You know, there's a lot of missions opportunities this year, right? Okay. How to be praying about that. Now, okay, so these believers scatter abroad. Now let's talk about that for a second. They go to Judea, okay? Now Judea is where other Jews are, right? And so they're going, and they're going to preach the gospel to other Jews. Totally fine. And then there's a group of people who go to Samaria. Now, Samaria is a place uh, of great contention. Okay, Samaritans are not well liked by the Jews. And it's a real mixed group of people. You've got some people. Uh, so the Samaritans basically created their own form of, of Judaism. They had their own temple. They worshiped there. Um, they believed that they were worshiping the same God. But there was all these other traditions that were mixed in. There was paganism was there as well. There was a a presence of Gentiles that were there. And and they were believing in different idolatrous things. And it was a real mixed bag in in Samaria. And so what you have is all these people who are scattering out to Judea and Samaria. And they're going and they're preaching the gospel. And suddenly, suddenly there's a report back that there's a need. There's a need for some of the deacons. There's a need for some of the apostles to come and preach the gospel. And to help us establish some leadership. To do some real evangelizing. And so Philip hears that call. Philip hears that call. Let's look at verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. Now, like Stephen, Philip was one of the seven deacons chosen by the Jerusalem church uh, to handle its more physical affairs. Remember that story? Remember how they established the first deacons? Now, I I don't know if you thought about this before, but the church in Jerusalem chose pretty dang good. Of those seven deacons that they established, One was the first martyr, and the other one was the first missionary. That's a pretty powerful story. Now, Samaria was a little province in the north of Judea, and the area was originally settled by pagan Assyrians. And the people there had been displaced by the Israelites long before, and established an unlawful form of Judaism there. So in other words, the Jews didn't recognize the Samaritans and they were hated. And you can, and you can actually hear about how hated they, they were through the Gospels. You know, Jesus was actually the first missionary to Samaria. You know, Jesus met, I don't know if you know are familiar with the story of the woman at the well, but Jesus went and preached the Gospel to the woman at the well and actually was the, was the first person to go into Samaria and speak of His coming. Now the Jews never accept, accepted Him and they hated them. Samaria was probably not a popular place for the first mission trip. I mean, I bet some of the apostles were like, you're going to go, where are you going to go? I, I bet, I bet there were some that were not a big fan of this decision. But it didn't, it didn't deter Philip. He went anywhere. And that shows you the perspective. You know, there's places in the world where people would tell you, you ought not go there. You know, I mean, Christians talking about other Christians going to preach the gospel, and they would say things like, you, "That's a bad idea." And I want to point out to you that if the apostles would have thought that way, the gospel would have never been spread. The men that we look to as our examples in Scripture—they didn't think that way. And it's shameful, it's shameful for us to think that there are places in the world that God would have us not to go. God's desire is that we go everywhere. And Philip understood that. And prejudice ought not get in the way either. You know, a lot of us have prejudices that we don't often consider. We we, we try not to think about them very often. We're, we're prejudiced against cultures sometimes things that we don't understand you know the things the things that we tend to be prejudiced against or the things that we hate or despise or struggle with are things that we don't generally understand we don't understand them and so we we build prejudices it's a real dangerous thing it's a real dangerous thing and and you know we we should never let our prejudice get in the way of Christ's love for every single person, nation, culture. Jesus loves humanity. And we need that heart. We need that heart. This is why I love Friends of International so much. I love it. I love it because what it says is that Kaya and Midtown Baptist Temple is not afraid of any culture. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to understand it. We just have to love those people. And that's the way Philip thought. So he went to Samaria. And he preached. He didn't waste any time. Right away it says, And he preached Christ unto them. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now what's that saying? What's that saying? This is is Peter making clear. That there is no other name besides the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that men and women in this world can be saved. Philip knew that. So he went and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went and he preached and he spoke up and they listened. And they listened in one accord. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things uh, which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now listen to me. They wanted to hear the message. They desired to hear the message. See, it sounded sounded way different than anything else they'd ever heard. It was different than their religions that they had known. It was different than the philosophies that they knew. It was was completely counter to what they'd experienced, and they were ready to hear it. I wonder how many people you know who are ready to hear the gospel. You don't speak it. Maybe it's prejudice that gets in the way. Maybe it's some sort of preconceived notion about that person and their unwillingness to hear you. But I'm telling you, I think, and I believe this with all my heart, that people, when you get down to it, they want to be set free. They desire to know that they're unconditionally loved. They desire to know that they can be forgiven of their sin. People know that they have sin, by the way. People know that. It's instinctual. It's where their guilt and their depression comes from. They know it. You don't have to convince them. It doesn't take much convincing to, 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 to get people to a place where they, they're saying, oh yeah, I, I guess I have sinned. Oh, and I thought I was good. <laughs> now, people basically know that they're wicked and evil and dirtbags. That's, they know that. Because they know in their heart what they do in the quiet of their home. And the way that they think in the quiet of their minds. They know. But what they need, what they need is the saving message of Jesus Christ. And we, we, as the messengers, should never get in the way of that. The Samaritans had religion, they had paganism, but what they wanted was Jesus. And they heard it. And they received it. Now, let's pause here before I get to the conclusion. Okay? And I want to I make a side note on spiritual warfare. Can I do that? So what does it say? It says, for unclean spirits, crying with, loud, with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now as it concerns physical and spiritual warfare, we often give intellectual assent. But we don't often engage it directly. This would be part of the passage that you would be like, oh, he did miracles. Let me keep moving. Right? And I think sometimes we can allow our um, theology... To get in the way of what what God's trying to tell us. And I want you to hear that in in the best way. I mean man's theology. I mean a personal perspective on on God's word. What you, you know, your personal views. We can allow those to get in the way of what God's telling us here. Now we understand, first and foremost, okay, let's talk about the theology for a second. We know in Acts, and if if this is new to you, go back, listen to the other messages. In, In Acts, God was doing something very, very unique in the world. He was using the Apostle's and the other leaders in the church to work miracles that the gospel might spread at, a, at an exceptional rate. And there wasn't a completed word of God yet. Okay, they, The average individual couldn't go pick up a, a, a Bible, right? And, it, and the word of God hadn't even been written yet. Paul, look, Paul's not even saved. He's over here persecuting people. We're, just not, we're not there yet. And so the, the Bible isn't complete. There's not a completed word of God. And God used miracles in the world to reveal the truth of who Jesus Christ was. That's, what, that's, that's the program that we're dealing with here. Does that make sense to everyone? And so we know theologically that in the early church, these types of gifts, gifts existed. And that the apostles could heal people of sickness. Okay? But here's the deal. If we, if we relegate that to just a theological perspective, then I think that we can forget something very important. That the minister of the gospel should be exceptionally concerned with the suffering of people, both physical and spiritual. There's something inspirational that we should walk away with here. Now, as it concerns physical illness, God uses Philip to bring physical healing to the sick people in Samaria. Now, do we not see illness in our world today? I mean, I think, I think what could happen here. We could, we could say to ourselves, well, you know, Philip was laying hands on people and they were, they were getting healed. Well, we can't, I don't have that gifting today. That isn't a gift that I have. I mean, if that was the case, we would all, like if we had that gifting, who would not be at children's mercy right this moment healing children? Every one of us. Every one of us right now would be in every ER and operating room and we would be laying hands on people and we would be healing them. Agreed? Any person that would have the gift of healing, shame on them for not being right now healing people. Okay? We don't have that gifting. But listen to me. We have something just as powerful, and we neglect it all the time. We can say to ourselves, oh, well, that's the doctor's job. That's true. The God has given us doctors. He's given us medicine. What an amazing thing. (laughs) But listen to me. I don't want us to dismiss, because of our theological bent, the idea that God desires us for, to pray for the healing of people all the time. He wants us to pray for illness. He wants us to pray for sickness. He wants us to lay hands on people. Okay? Not to heal them with our hands, but to call on the power of God. He desires for that. And we ought to have a hurt, like a, a pain in our heart when pe- we see people suffering physically. That should move us. We ought to be aware of that. Now, now concerning spiritual illness and spiritual oppression. Well, hold on. Hold on. I, I skipped a verse. It's irrelevant here. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray, uh, pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Isn't that true? We say that verse a lot, but you know that verse has a lot to do with healing there. Healing. And if we want healing, then we we ought to pray effectual, fervent prayers for one another. You know, and and Connor Bartlett is a great example. For for those of you who know that testimony, there's a young man in in our fellowship of churches who, his body was just fraught with cancer. And we've seen a miraculous work in his life. And he went back to school this week. Did you guys see that? You know, God, God healed him. And God used doctors. No one's one's taking that away from the. God used doctors. But God heard our prayers. And that's ten times more important. That's ten times more important than the hand of a doctor is the hand of God. He is the great physician. We ought not forget that for one moment. And we ought to be making prayers for those who are sick. But as it concerns spiritual oppression, you know, Philip casts out demons. And we say to ourselves, well,. God gave him a particular gift to do that work in a particular time. And that's absolutely true. And I could defend that theologically all all day. And you know, today what we we do, when we see peculiar, and we see wicked behavior, and we, we dismiss it. And our culture would say, well, that's the job of the psychiatrists and the therapists and the counselors. That's what they would say that job is for. You know what? You know why they say that? It's because I think a lot of time when people are oppressed spiritually and their minds are divided and they've been sifted by Satan and they are lost to their own thoughts. You know, Christians have given up on praying for those who are mentally disturbed, who are spiritually disturbed. You know, we've, we've, we've forgotten that that's part of our job. You know, when we get to heaven, some of us might be shocked to find out that demons were as active today in the 21st century as they were in the first. There's no less demons in the world today than there were in that first century. You know, we fail to believe that God still has power over demonic influence. And it might be subtle, you know, again, I, we could talk about this all day long, but I want to point out to you that there are places in the world where demonic oppression looks just like it did in the first century. There's examples, and many people in here have experienced that on mission trips. They've seen people doing and being things that just... In an American perspective, we just have no idea. We have no idea. But I'm telling you, right now, there are people in your lives who are spiritually oppressed. And it's got them lost to hours and hours of entertainment every day. They They are lost. Satan has them so deceived that he's convinced them that they ought to sit in front of a television. Hours and hours and hours of their day and just be lost in fantasy. They are more, no more demonized, are no less demonized than the people that we see here. They are trapped. They are in bondage. They are lost. Their minds are they're lost. They're imprisoned to their sin. And we ought to, to give our lives to praying for people. No matter what their circumstances, if they are spiritually in, uh, oppressed in any way, we have to give our lives to praying for people just like that. We, we, we've got to see that demons and that the devil is involved in all kinds of distractions. 2 yeah. Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. It is by our faith in Christ and by His very name, by His name that demons tremble. It's by the name of Jesus Christ that demons tremble. So key point number three, You want to be a mature minister? Never neglect the knowledge of other people's pain or the presence of evil. Okay, you want to be a mature minister? When you look out to the people that you serve, you ought to be fully aware of those who are sick and ill and in pain. Be aware of them. In your Bible study, be aware of those who are struggling physically. In our church, be aware of those who need your prayer for their physical pain. That's what a mature minister would do. You want to be a mature minister? Then always be aware of the presence of evil. Always be aware that Satan is at work. If God is at work, Satan is at work. Be aware. Be circumspect. Do not neglect to remember that there is a host of evil beings all around us. Just because you can't see them, does not mean that they aren't exceptionally present and at work. Don't don't forget. Don't forget. Philip recognized that parts of uh, the part of his mission was to address the pain and the suffering of the people that were caught in the turmoil of their sin. If we are ministers of the gospel, then we too wage war through prayer against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we do. Now now look at this. And there was great joy in that city because they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was great joy in the city. Revival came. Salvation broke out. And with forgiveness comes joy, comes celebration, right? I feel like I'm losing you guys. Are you with me? Yes. Here's the thing that I want you to get. Listen. There was great joy in that city. But before there could be great joy in Samaria, there had to be great persecution in Jer- Jerusalem. There had to be great discomfort in Jerusalem. The, the believers had to be taken out of their comfort zone. They had to be jostled. They had to be shook. They had to face some difficulty. So one man's persecution is another man's salvation, another man's joy. So why is it that you're working so hard to be so comfortable, Christian? Why is it that you're pursuing your desires so hard so you can have the life that you want when your only purpose in this life is to be used by God? See, these people were willing to give up everything for the mission. These people were willing to give their possessions, their friendships, their family, their whole lives for the mission. Some of us have such a low view of Christ that we wouldn't even be willing to change our plans. Do you understand that? Some of us have such a low view of Christ that our plans about college, our career, our living arrangements... We wouldn't even be willing to sacrifice the most simple things and these people gave up everything. They weren't afraid of persecution. Now now here's my question for you, 21st century believer. Are you willing to let your plans change for the mission? That's That's the question for you today. What plans have you created for your life? Would you be willing to let those plans change For the sake of the gospel. I mean, if we're honest right now, there's many of us right now who are refusing to think about it. Stephen gave his life. Are you willing to do things that are hard and inconvenient? Are you willing to change where you live? Are you willing to change who you minister to? Are you willing to allow your circumstances to be altered for the sake of the gospel? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now as we close, the worship team can come on up. I'm going to pray. Listen, what, what I'm desiring right now is that you would take this moment, this time of invitation, as an opportunity to reflect on the things that you are holding on to with a tight grip. See, you know what? As it concerns God's plan for our life, we need to have an open-handed view. We need God to take us by the hand and we need him to lead us. But if your life plans have your hands at your side, tightly clenched, there's a good chance you're going to repress the Holy Spirit in your life and you will not be used the way God wants to.